0: Welcome back. It's the ride with JMV 9351075, The Fan. I'm Derek Schultz filling in and really excited to talk to our next guest. You know him as the face, the voice, the everything of the Big Ten Network, which recently celebrated its 16th anniversary. Can you believe that? 16 years for BTN. He is Dave Revson. And, Dave, I've been off the air for a while, as you know, but coming back it was important for me to have something that I was familiar with. So I'm originally from Connecticut, so when when I would come back home from IU – my mom would make this, like, mac and cheese casserole thing, and it had, like, like breaded chicken and, like, all kinds of stuff in there. It was It was my comfort food. So Dave Revson is, like, my radio comfort food, if that makes any sense at
1: all. <laughs> I am really honored to fill that role in your life, the role of macaroni and cheese casserole, I think. It was I'm good. Perfect for that. Yeah. It was
0: good, just yeah. like you are at uh, at your job. Um, <laughs> let's start locally here, because uh, you know the Ryan Walters era. I know got off to a little bit of a rocky start, but I, I think we knew, and and I think he knew what he'd be signing up for with that non league schedule. You got power five teams and a, and a good Fresno team who they barely lost to. But how important was that win over Illinois? Not only with it being a rivalry game, but just to make sure this thing didn't get too far off the rails there in season one in West Lafayette.
1: I think it was really big, Derek. And I think where it was particularly big was not just that they won, but how convincingly they won. Yeah. Because you know, Illinois is at least on paper a pretty good team. I don't really know what's going on with them. And maybe we talk a little bit more about them later. They've been the biggest disappointment to me, I guess, so far in the Big Ten. But I looked at that game as a toss-up game going into it. And for Purdue, not just to win, but to win 44-19, to pull away in the second half, to do it with Ryan Walters calling the defense for the first time this year, because the defense, when you hire Ryan Walters, you think, well, the defense is going to be pretty good. And it really hadn't been, Mm -hmm. they they had struggled on that side of the ball. And then they had struggled a lot with turnovers. And I just thought the way they played in that game, both sides of the ball, they seem to have found a run game. All that stuff really bodes well. I, I think it's really encouraging. They got a fascinating game. At Iowa, the Hawkeye's are really banged up. So maybe you get a little something going here. But but I feel very differently about Purdue. Than I did a week ago.
0: It's interesting because I think a lot of teams and programs do this, where the coach, after even a successful coach like Jeff Brom was successful there, seems to always be sort of the opposite. You know, and not just the fact that Jeff was an offensive guy and then Ryan comes in as a defensive guy, but I think even vibes wise, even though Jeff Brom was more new age in his offensive thinking, I think a lot of what he did was kind of old school, and and Ryan Walters is kind of the new, you know, thirty seven years old. Um, I think sort of the new kid on the block, if you will. But since I haven't had the chance to ask you since he was hired, what were your initial impressions of Walters and just his fit overall with that program?
1: Well, I just think it was really interesting that they went with a defensive coach because as everyone who's listening here knows, that's not something Purdue does. I mean, the last guy they hired with a defensive background was Leon Met in 1981. All, all the rest of them subsequent to that have been offensive coaches So I think initially when I heard his name tossed around at Purdue, I was a little surprised by it. But then the fact that he went out and hired Graham Harrell and said we're going to run an air raid attack and had the ability to go into the portal and get a quarterback as good as Hudson Card, I think that that, to me, was kind of, hey, you've you've got the best of both worlds going here. You're going to be really good on defense, and now you've hired a guy who understands, like, where the bread has been buttered historically at this program, that it is traditionally a program where people want to see you score points and it's cradle quarterbacks and all that. So I, I think it's a, a win-win. I certainly liked him a lot. He did an amazing job at, at Illinois, as as you're well aware. So and and was great to deal with and all that kind of stuff. Um, I would not have said Purdue was the place I would have seen him go, but. The, the fact that he did it kind of in the way that he's done it i think speaks to he understands the place and, and i think it's going to prove to be a really good fit
0: i think they were surprised too dave honestly i, I think they kind of gave him an interview because they were like well here's a young kind of hotshot coordinator but we don't really know much about him he's not high on their list and then they they talked to him and i don't know if it was just the vibes or the confidence or what but i, I think that's when mike babinski and company were kind of blown away
1: yeah, I mean, that that seems to jibe uh, with some of the stuff that I've heard. And he's a tough guy not to be impressed by, right? He's just – he does have a really cool vibe about him. Players really relate to him. I mean, even just like a tire on the sidelines, right? I mean, he's in a T-shirt. Uh, I, I just, it's just different. And this is kind of where it's going, I think, in college football, you know, that it is about – coaches the players can relate to because if you don't want to play for a guy you have a very easy way to get out of it it's never been easier and so i do think it has to be someone who appeals to players and and who also is going to win and and i really do think ryan walters will win so yeah i'm with you i i'm not sure this is exactly where they saw it going but it makes a ton of sense and and again i feel great about it after last week and 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 just really interested to see what happens here going forward because the big 10 West really is wide open. I mean, they've got a, they've got a difficult schedule, as you know, because they play both Michigan and Ohio state. I, I think it'd be pretty shocking if they were the team that emerged from the West, but they're gonna have, I think, good head to head success against the other teams in the division.
0: Dave Repson of the Big Ten Network is our guest here on the ride with J M V, ninety three five one oh seven five the fan. I, I would have let me preface by saying this when we get to Indiana, Dave. I, I would have been perfectly okay if Indiana would have just gone to College Park and lost like thirty eight to twenty eight. I, I would have been perfectly fine with that. You know, I wouldn't have had a problem with that. That was not a game that I was expecting them to win. I think we know that the Terps are really good offensively, and I don't know, maybe this is going to be a special season for them. I still think that's yet to be determined. But Indiana getting blown off the field by Maryland a week after surviving a terrible MAC team in Akron, just it just doesn't seem to bode well to me. Um, this bye probably comes at a good time, but how down are you right now on the state of things down in Bloomington?
1: It is tough. I, I, they have not played well here at all these last couple of weeks. and It's weird because that second half against Louisville thought, wow, okay. You know, yeah. the defense completely shut them down in the second half. And, and so that was really positive. And there's a, you can look at that and say, wow, they've gotten better here defensively. And they were so putrid last year on that side of the ball. And, okay, so maybe this is work, particularly bringing in Macarray. And then offensively, I mean, obviously the the goal line play, they would love to have back. But it did feel like there were some signs of life. And maybe you found a quarterback here in David Jackson. And then it's just gone sideways here these last two weeks. And uh, it'll be interesting to see coming off of the bye what this looks like offensively. Obviously, they fired – while bell and brought in rod Carey, and so does that make a difference do you still have david jackson as your quarterback do you go back to source B? but yeah i think it's fair with a coach who's in his seventh season after the two really good years they had back to back their expectations have been higher here these last few years for iu and it's it, it doesn't appear to be based on what we've seen these last couple of weeks that it's dramatically better. Now, I will say, like, the defense played great against Ohio State. They look good against Indiana State. Obviously, Indiana State isn't very good. But, I mean, if you're a glasses half full person, you could certainly look at those first couple weeks and then the back half of that Louisville game and you could see some progress. But you'd have to squint pretty hard to see it these last couple of weeks. So, we'll see what the offense looks like. We'll see whether they can solve that issue and whether Rod Carey helps. But, But I get it if IU fans are discouraged, no doubt. And going to the big house is the the first game there. Uh, That's not exactly a very friendly way to to reboot it. And and two of the first three are – are at Michigan and at Penn State, so it's it's a challenge, no doubt.
0: And my bar's not very high, and, and this is a league that, you know, outside of Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan st- and th- that are always up, you have a lot of programs that have had down cycles, even successful ones. We saw it with Michigan State and, and Mark D'Antonio. We saw it with uh, Kirk Ferentz in Iowa, um, Northwestern and Pat Fitzgerald. You know, it seemed like every other year they were in in a down cycle and then immediately an up cycle. What worries me and the big red flag to me, Dave, is that if, if this ultimately is going to end up up being like a 2-10 and ten or 3-9 and nine year. I mean, we're three years removed now from Penix and the magic of, of 2020. That, that's a pretty prolonged down cycle. Um, and, and, and they're struggling. But the thing is, is that it, it's not that they're even competitive in the games that they're losing and then they're destroying the bad teams. They're barely surviving the bad teams like Western Kentucky and Akron and then getting destroyed by the better teams. And, and it's just a big, big red flag to me.
1: It's a fair criticism. I mean, I, I get it. Uh, I look, anyone who's been around Tom Allen, it's impossible not to like him. He has infectious enthusiasm. He really wants this job and, you know, it's a, it feels like a great fit for him, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I hear you. Like I think it's fair to look back on 2019 and 2020 and kind of say, what was that about? when they just haven't been able to to follow it up. And and it's fair to look at Michael Penix and the fact that this guy might be the Heisman front runner and, and think to have let that guy get away. I I mean, but that's just kind of what college football is now. And it's rough. I mean, again, I, I like him a lot. I really want this to work out. And I, I guess we'll see. I mean, this, Firing of, of Walt Bell and going with Rod Carey. I mean, that's a, a move that basically says he understands like they got to win now and, and that this is a really important juncture for him. So let's see. I mean, there have been a few signs here and there. You know, certainly there were there were moments with Jackson. I, I do wonder had Dexter Williams not got hurt last year. I think he gave them a little bit different dimension, and, and it sounds like there's a possibility he comes back. During the course of this year, I think he's a difficult guy to defend. So I'm not ready to give up on them, but I definitely get it with IU fans. I mean, I understand this feeling of kind of – this feels headed in the wrong direction.
0: We're joined by Dave Resnick of the Big Ten Network. When we last spoke regularly, it was back when Jim Harbaugh was at Michigan, but they would do this where they would start off really hot and they'd beat a bunch of teams that they were better than, and then we'd be like, "Well, well let's wait, let's wait till we get to Penn State, let's wait till we get to Ohio State, or even Michigan State." In that era, and, and Michigan would end up ultimately stubbing their toe. They're past that now. <laughs> you know, it feels like they've really broke through, making the playoff the last couple of years. Um, right now, pound for pound, just how they look. And and I get it. I, and I, I get that people will question the schedule so far, but they're destroying people. Are, are they the best team in the country right now, in your opinion?
1: It's interesting. I just had this conversation with Joel Klatt. We were recording something with him for tomorrow's show. And I was asking him the same question. He asked Michigan number one in his rankings. And I was kind of asking him why. And, and he was saying, you know, there's an era of inevitability to what they do, and he saw that more so than Texas and Georgia. I I think Texas has a chance to stake that claim this week. I mean, if they beat Oklahoma and beat them pretty soundly, I think that might move them up to that number one spot, just given the quality of that win at Alabama as well. But you're right. I mean, Michigan is just killing people. They're 5-0. All five of the wins are by at least 24 points. It's the first time they've done that since 04. And, yes, that is 1904. So, I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen a Michigan team come out of the gate as dominant as this. But I also agree with what you're saying, Derek, which is like, you know, they haven't played great teams yet. I think Rutgers is pretty good. I mean, I think Rutgers is going to be a bowl team Nebraska, probably not. I mean, they would need to improve significantly. And then the non-conference schedule was just not competitive at all. So, and and then the other thing they have going for them is their schedule. Like, unlike Ohio State, like you look at Ohio State's schedule and they're like, man, there are some challenging games coming up here in, in the next few weeks. That is really not the case with Michigan. I mean, it's – again, Minnesota, you know, I don't think Minnesota's great. They've got IU. They go to Michigan State. We know the problems they're having. Home against Purdue. Like, it's a long time until they've got tough games. You know, two of their last three are at Penn State, at Maryland, Ohio State. Like, it may be that long until they play someone. It probably isn't going to be that long until they play somebody who's nationally ranked. So, I I happen to think they're really good – but I could understand people saying, I want to see how they fare against Penn State and Ohio State, maybe to a lesser extent Maryland, before I draw a conclusion on, conclusion on them.
0: Wanted to leave you with a, a hoops question. The IU-Kentucky series is coming back to life. That news just broke yesterday. Yeah. And I, I know it's not Big Ten-centric. Obviously, UK is an SEC team. But the league has these non-league hoop rivalries, like I know Bragg rights with Illinois and Mizzou. And um, Nebraska Creighton's a thing, right? Don't, don't they take that yes. pretty seriously? That, that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah,
1: Nebraska won it last year. Yeah, it was a, it was a great game. Yes, that was a very serious game, no doubt.
0: Knowing about the history and to have IU and UK was, was a thing in the early years of the Big Ten Network, of course, Indiana's breakthrough moment under Tom Crean twenty eleven. 2011. Um, are you excited to see something like that back on the calendar again?
1: I love it. I think it's really good. I think I like the compromise they reached in terms of the locations of the games uh, the more of that stuff that we can do on campus, to me, the better. Uh, I just think, uh, like that Christian Watford shot, I mean, that shot will live forever, right? I mean, and and part of what makes it so amazing is that camera, we call it the slash camera in the business. that was up in the corner of, of Assembly Hall, and just to watch the reaction of the fans as that shot went through. I mean, it's one of those moments you just, it sends chills up your spine, so, yeah, I, I think it's wonderful. I'm thrilled to see it come back. Kudos to everyone involved for making it happen. And, yeah, I mean, is that like, I, I know you're kind of going down the road of is that the best non conference game? I mean, like, the, the you know, Illinois Missouri is a cool game, they split it right in half and, and all that. But, I mean, when you're talking about just like blue blood programs, you're, IU and Kentucky. You just can't match that. So, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to see it come back. And, and really, again, kudos to everyone involved. It'll be really cool. I know fans are excited.
0: What I'm interested to see is, is Mike Woodson or John Calipari coaching by the time it gets to Bloomington, at least in 28. <laughs> you know, Are they still yeah. with their programs anymore? It'll be kind of interesting to see. Uh, Dave Revson, you can follow on Twitter, X, whatever you call it, at BTN Dave Revson. Where's the BTN tailgate this week, by the way?
1: The BTN tailgate is a home game this gotcha. week. They are they are not uh, going out on the road, and then I'm not sure where they're heading next week. But yeah, we have a very light schedule on the network this week.
0: Gotcha. And I know you have uh, Northwestern, I think, on Saturday, right? Is that the BTN game on Saturday?
1: Northwestern and Howard. Yes, gotcha. going head-to-head.
0: You can check that out, btn.com. Thanks so much for doing this, Dave. You know, Jake actually does the show right before this one, and I told him yesterday that you were coming on, and he seemed to be pretty distraught about it. So I don't know if you have his phone number still, but if you could shoot him a text like a, how you doing? (laughs) Just check in real quick. I want to make sure that he's in good spirits, knowing that, you know, you and I have rekindled our friendship here on the air.
1: He never checks in with me, and now I'm supposed to check (laughs) in with him? I mean, I I don't know, man. I I don't You know, I'm not happy with the ratio. Like, it's got to go both ways. It's so one-sided with him, isn't it? It All right, buddy. Great talk to you, Derek.
0: Thanks so much, Dave. Our next guest uh, is peddling a lot here lately when it comes to all of the things that he's involved with. You know him as the co-host of Locked On Colts with Zach Hicks. He's also the deputy editor of Horseshoe Huddle at SI.com. He's at every Colts game. He's at all the practices. A handsome, bearded, glasses fellow, just like me. So we brought on Jake, Jake Arthur, here on the guest line, who joins us on the ride with JMV, ninety-three five and one zero seven five, the fan. Um, now that I'm not full, not in it full time anymore, I'm I'm glad that you've been able to kind of fill that void, Jake, of handsome, glasses, bearded guy on the Colts beat, talking Colts football in Indy. So thanks so much for taking that torch and and really
2: advancing it oh well you're the stud man that's that's big shoes to fill someone had to do it
0: you just want to do 15 minutes on jonathan taylor here or what
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think I've talked about Jonathan Taylor enough where I can I can kind of carry some weight. You know, I've talked a lot about him over the last few months.
0: <laughs> Obviously uh, going to have some catching up to do here. And, and Jake and I kind of talked about this, uh, Jake Quarry and I talked about this at the very beginning of the show ab- about his potential to play Sunday. Um, is there any reason to believe if he's healthy and practices Thursday, Friday, and then even next week? I, I'm not expecting him to play on Sunday, Jake. I'm not sure if you are. But is there any reason to believe that maybe next week uh, shouldn't be kind of the, the time where you could throw Jonathan Taylor back in there, even with a new quarterback, a new coordinator, new coach?
2: Yeah, I'm kind of where you are. I'm not really expecting him this week. There is an outside chance. And for even Shane Steichen, who keeps things pretty close to the chest, for him to leave it open, that kind of says a lot. Uh, but I do think they would probably be a lot more comfortable rolling him out next week. Um, there, there's just some things, you know, there, he's got to get back in football shape. Uh, he, he's been in the system. He's been learning things, you know, Shane Sykes offense for months now, but you got to put it to literally put it to use on the field. He hasn't had to do that yet. Uh, so there's that stuff. There's kind of learning Anthony Richardson's tendencies. There's just a lot of like little small details where if he comes out in practice and looks awesome, like he looks like Jonathan Taylor, that we all know. Sure. Maybe they put him out there this Sunday in a small package of plays, uh, but I, I I feel like you do. I, I'd probably target more so next week.
0: From what you've heard, I guess lately, and it, it's been a little bit all quiet on the western front, at least relationship wise. Remember, like two months ago, it was seemingly every hour there was a new tweet from his agent, or you know he's liking something on Twitter, or Ursay's saying something, and there was a, this little bit of a like a two week period of of a, of a back and forth. And now that that's quieted down, do you know Jake? Is this relationship? salvageable is is an extension that both parties would find agreeable. Is that still feasible or or do we have to hear that from JT himself when he's activated and made available to the media?
2: Yeah, I think we have to hear that from him just because we, I mean, there's been some reports that seem pretty solid, uh, you know, over the last couple months, but for the most part, the only person who's going to be able to give solid answers to these things is him. And he's been quiet this whole time. You know, there's just a lot of questions that have to be answered that only he can answer. Um, Now, from what everyone else is saying on the outside, at least from the Colts, they really hope things are, you know, that they can salvage this. Jim Ursay said, you know, I'm I'm counting on Chris Ballard to calm the waters. And then when Chris Ballard spoke to us, it it sounded the whole thing was like a very pro Jonathan Taylor press conference. And it really sounded like an olive branch to me. Uh, so I, I think the Colts are really, really hopeful that they can do this. And I think, I think there's just a misunderstanding maybe nationally about things. I don't think the Colts ever have not wanted to have, you know, Jonathan Taylor on the team or extend him. I just think they want him to reprove it first. You know, he's got to be healthy. And he's got to show that he fits in well to this offense, which a player like him fits into any offense. But, I mean, last time we saw him, he had the banged-up ankle. He had to have it cleaned up, and then it took forever for it to heal. Uh, So I I think they would be more than willing to kind of come to the negotiation table once they see that he's Jonathan Taylor again. Uh, I mean, on his part, that's got to be irritating and probably, you know, it's hard to probably show that type of patience. But I've got to imagine there's been so much talk behind the scenes of trying to come to some sort of understanding of where each side is.
0: Yeah. And and it's one of those situations where even though I think most people have sided with the Colts because I think they have a defensible outlook and, and you laid some of that out there, Jake, that. They want to see him come back and be healthy and be the old Jonathan Taylor before they extend him also a new regime. I mean, they talked about that, the fact that they, outside of the long snapper, they weren't handing out a bunch of extensions this offseason. But you can also understand it from Taylor's side of things where he's saying, what do you mean I have to wait? Quentin Nelson didn't have to wait, and Kenny Moore didn't have to wait, and you know, all these. Shaq Leonard didn't have to wait. All these other guys that you, you've had been in the same portion of their contract have, have gotten those lucrative extensions at that time, it it just, it does bother me that nationally they've just, I I mean, really like people have missed the boat. I feel like on this with the Colts trade demands and laughing off the fact that they wanted a first rounder. And and you're saying to yourself, guys, don't you know that this means that they don't want to trade him. Right. And it it just feels like what's obvious to us here in Indianapolis doesn't seem so obvious to the people nationally.
2: Yeah. And that's absolutely right. And you know, the, the trade demands, are high because of how they view him. Sure, they, they they view prime Jonathan Taylor that way, and they they think he's still there, but he's got to prove it. Essentially, you know, people are like they're crazy for asking for Jalen Waddle or um, or Christian Watson up in Green Bay. And in my mind, I'm I'm like, is it really that crazy to think that prime Jonathan Taylor isn't at least equal to prime Jalen Waddle? Because that's how the Colts see it. And I, I'm I mean again, they do value him. It's just they don't want to pay out that money right now. And, you know, they have paid guys like Nelson and, and Braden Smith and Grover Stewart and everything, but it and Shaquille Leonard, but it feels like the only really solid returns on investment they've got on those guys is Braden Smith continued to get better and Grover Stewart continued to get better. But you know, Shaquille Leonard has unfortunately been banged up and Quentin Nelson is salvaging things now, but he went through a couple rough seasons yeah. with injuries as well. So they're kind of learning from their own I'm not going to say mistakes because those guys definitely deserve new deals but they're kind of learning from things they've done in
1: the past
0: we're talking with Jake Arthur he's the deputy editor of Horseshoe Huddle at SI.com co-host of Locked on Colts it's the ride with JMV 93.5 and 107.5 the fan let's talk about some of the guys that that are here and are playing Um, I I thought this performance really got overshadowed and maybe it would have been less overshadowed if if the Colts had actually won the game but how about Dio on on Sunday? Um, is this going to be the year that he makes the leap? Because I, I think we saw it early before he ended up dealing with the concussion stuff, and hopefully he gets back on track with Quiddy Pay in, and in what he was producing through the first three games. But this is a big year for for Dio as well. I feel like.
2: Yeah, totally agree. So last year with all the injuries, you know, Quiddy Pay got banged up late. Uh, Yanni Kengakuwa was kind of here and there. Gio was getting more and more playing time and he was productive, but it seemed like a product of him hustling and he had a high motor and he was just kind of in the right place at the right time. Now it's, it seems very uh, intentional. Like it's a product of the, you know, the moves he's putting on offensive tackles and it, it looks more manufactured like it would from a really good player. Uh, if, if that makes sense. So it, it seems like his all around game is starting to come together because he was I don't want to say a project, but he had a lot of things to work on when he came into the league, plus he had the Achilles. So I think we're seeing, you know, a healthy player a few years in now, and he's learning how to attack blockers, you know, because there's, there's just ways that you have to counter these guys. There's so many intricacies in, in uh, defensive versus offensive line play, and I think he's starting to get a lot of that down. Same thing with Quiddy Pei. Uh, Pay is just probably a little ahead of the curve. Jake
0: Arthur joins us. Uh, also defensively, how concerned are you? You know, speaking of things that got overshadowed, um, because he's not a big name and because he's not an all pro looking, you know, Dallas Flowers is a nice player. He's a nice story as well. But him going down with the Achilles injury, just because the Colts are so thin at that spot, uh, how concerned are you about corner early in this season? Because, you know, God forbid you've got another injury, but even at this point you're you're having to throw Jalen Jones or, or Darrell Baker Jr. out there.
2: Yeah, that, that one's tough. Um, not Again, not like you mentioned, not because he's like a Pro Bowl-level player, but he has proven that he could play at a starting level. And he's got the right mentality that you want in a cornerback. Like, he can give up a big play, but then he'll keep fighting and, and attacking the ball through the air the very next play. Like, he's – I call him a, a cocky cornerback. You know, they, they've they've kind of got to be wired that way. They've got to be really, really confident. And that was his mentality. And so you're you're down a quality player, and that was that, somehow he was one of your more experienced guys, and this was only his second year, and he barely played defense last year. Uh, so you got Juju Brinson, and Jalen Jones, who are probably your your outside starters, who are both rookies. Kenny Moore in the slot, you know who he is. Uh, but Daryl Baker Jr. You now he got he got made a healthy scratch two weeks in a row because of how much he struggled. So when you look by, beyond that, you have Tony Brown, who's been primarily a special teamer throughout his career but is also then mostly a slot defender so if you need someone to back up on the outside he may not be the best fit for that uh so beyond that you're you're looking at a couple practice squad guys so just in general you you need quality proven bodies basically at the position
0: last thing here jake if i were to have handed you a sheet of paper i guess with everything that the colts had done through the first quarter of the season here at two and two and I, I guess I would have allowed you to watch all the games. I can't hand you a sheet of paper because 11 of 25 doesn't do Anthony Richardson's game on Sunday justice. I, th- I think we would agree. Are, are yeah. they ahead of where you thought they were going to be right where they thought they were going to be behind where you thought they were going to be going into the season?
2: Uh, I think they're they're pretty much on track. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't think they'd really be a playoff team this year and I didn't think they would be like a, a seller dweller, like a lot of people did nationally. I thought they would be competitive pretty much every week, probably finish around like seven or eight wins. And I, I feel like they're outperforming that a little bit right now because how the AFC South is stacked, like they, they legitimately look like they have a shot at the division. Cause none of these teams really looks like dynamite, you know? Um, so if you say they're right down the middle, they're leaning a little more towards ahead of schedule, I would think, uh, because Anthony Richardson, your rookie quarterback, who people were like, "Yeah, I don't know if he'll be able to like lead them right away." Their offense only looks explosive if he's out there, uh, so that's part of it. You know, the offensive line has been pretty pretty steady when healthy. Uh, so there, and, and the defensive line also has been. Great, You know, save for some moments against the Rams. Uh, there's just really, really critical areas that are performing well, and that is often the biggest difference between winning and losing. So I think the Colts, luckily for them, are really, really good in some key areas.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree with you about the Sower dweller comment. I was surprised how many people nationally thought this was going to be like a, a three-win team, and I thought they had more talent than that. In fact, last year was a bad team, and they probably should have been 7-10. and 10. You know, if every single yeah. thing didn't go wrong for them last year, they probably should have been 7-10. and 10. So it's, it's not that this roster is devoid of talent. It's just that you've got areas like you have a Corner where they're just very th- thin or they, they've just got nothing there. And um, and maybe that's a problem going forward. We'll have to see. At Jake Arthur, NFL on X, Twitter, Locked on Colts podcast, all major platforms, si.com slash NFL slash Colts for Horseshoe Huddle. Keep up the good work, my man. Like I said, keep carrying that torch over there at West 56th Street for me.
2: All right. Appreciate
0: you, handsome devil. KB joins us now on the guest line. Um, how how goes it in the morning? I, I'm liking what I'm hearing so far, but I, I know people don't really understand. I think they think that you just turn on the microphone and you're like, oh, you just you just go, right? You just start talking cults so It's difficult, right, when you, you just kind of airdrop somebody else in with you and, and you're trying to do a, a two-man show together. It takes some time and some growth, kind of like what we're seeing with – it's almost like Anthony Richardson just in sports radio form, right?
3: Yeah, probably the only time that our show will ever be compared to Anthony <laughs> Richardson. So, thank you for that, Derek. Always good to chat with you. Um, so, appreciate you helping us out today. But, yeah, it, I would say that's a nice, nice comparison. Uh, you know, for a- Andy, too, I can't even imagine. Like, yeah. he gets thrown into this at the start, or I guess, yeah, pretty much the end of training camp, start of the regular season. Uh, he moves from Sellersburg, Indiana, just north of Louisville, for like the first time in 20 years. And then his wife, who was supposed to be due, I believe, here in two or three more weeks, she all of a sudden has little Mason Sweeney at 34 weeks. So you throw all, and Mason's doing great, by the way, but you throw all of that in there, like life changing job, big move, first kid. That's a lot. So uh, Andy's been great. He's, prepares um a a ton which is certainly the polar opposite of of the uh of the previous co-host that i had (laughs) um but yeah he uh I'm enjoying it, and like you, I think there's a little bit of uh, New York Giants background there.
0: There is, yeah. That's what we originally bonded over. Uh, the, the good thing for me is that I was smart enough to kind of abandon the Giants after they won here, because I was like, I'm good. They, they're never gonna top this. I'm here in Indy. They won in Indy. I scooped up confetti and sent it to my dad. Like I'm good for life. And uh, poor Andy is still dealing with the the day to day with the die Giants. Hard. Yeah. Yeah.
3: He. Yeah. It's he a tough a, existence. He lives man. and dies with it. So yeah, he's certainly dying with it right now.
0: Right now, a lot going on in Colts' world. Um, are we just are, are are we reaching the light at the end of the tunnel in the Jonathan Taylor situation here, Kevin? Or are we just kind of restarting the clock on some of the things that we went through in, in July and August again? In your opinion?
3: Yeah, it, we we probably can finally start to see some light, but boy, there's a whole lot left in the tunnel that still needs to be kind of sifted through. I mean, again, we still have yet. Obviously, Taylor's still yet to practice. You know, say was just a walkthrough, but the expectation is he, of course, will practice tomorrow. For the first time he's done that since mid-December. And then uh, he's got to meet the media at, at some point. Um, and I, I would say give a little bit of his side to the story. And, and, you know, when that happens, which technically he does not need to talk to the media until uh, he gets called up to the 53-man roster. So, you know, there's a possibility that might ha- that might not happen until whenever he's deemed game ready. You know, I am curious what his message will be, what his tone will be. I've said this before. His past personality, and again, we haven't talked to him in about four months, so that's why I use that that phrase, he's not like a good holder outer, if that makes sense. Like <laughs> he's not a he's not Terrell Owens on the driveway with Drew Rosenhaus right beside him and and doing, you know, push ups and sit ups. Like that's not Taylor, but Again, he clearly has been pretty upset about it, but is the venom that was really alive and and boiling over in July and August, is that still going to be there? Or does he want to share that maybe now that he's back practicing and and theoretically he's going to play for the Colts relatively soon and all of that. So, again, there's still a whole lot to get through. You know, October 31st is probably another deadline of the trade deadline. But, yes, to your point, I do think there is some light. It's just a lot of things we got to clear before we get there.
0: To me, the the best thing for him, and I understand why he did what he did. I understand why the Colts have, have done what they've done. I, I, it's one of these rare things in sports where you know everybody wants to pick a side, and and I kind of can understand. Even if I'm picking a side, I can understand where both sides are coming from. I, I really have felt all along that his best play was to just come back, be healthy, and be the 2021 level Jonathan Taylor again. Because I think what, what got lost here, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, KB, is that. Nationally, they they seem to have pushed this uh, feeling that, well, the Colts never wanted to extend Jonathan Taylor. And I don't think that's true. I think they were fully intending to extend him. They just wanted to extend him... On their terms when it came to timing and when it came to finances. Um, so I don't think that's off the table, at least from the Colts side of things. But if if he comes back and plays well, unless he's really dug in about playing somewhere else, I'm under the assumption that he's going to get the extension. It might not be the extension that he wants, but um, an extension offer, at least from the Colts.
3: Yeah, um, I I am probably a little bit more on the I'll believe the extension when I see it. I mean, clearly they've made a stance of they don't want to give him an extension right now. And we know that Chris Ballard has stated the four-win reason. And, you know, obviously, you know, you probably have to contribute a little bit of health and the new staff and however else, you know, whatever else you want to throw in there. But, you know, if you look at past-present with this franchise with, Jim Ursa, you know, running back, getting that, that second contract that really hasn't been there. And, you know, Ursa can kind of just be a um, when he talks, usually he's going to express his opinion. And I think in the times that he has chatted about the Taylor situation, you've never got him in any way, shape or form mentioning the future with Taylor. And if it happens, I tend to think it'll be the franchise tag. Um I don't think it'll be the multi-year extension. Now, again, things can change in a hurry with this, and we'll see how the rest of 2023 plays out and you know how they view Michael Pittman at the end of the year and, and what they feel like Jonathan or uh, Anthony Richardson needs in terms of support around him. But to your er- earlier point, yeah, I mean, you know, Taylor has got to, to play. He really has no choice, and, you know, if he views it in the audition light, does he you know, look at Sunday even and say, hey, I really want to play as early as possible because you know there's four games between now and the trade deadline. And if you want to use the Christian McCaffrey analogy from last year, here, Christian McCaffrey was traded right before the trade deadline to a 3-3 three three 49ers team. And McCaffrey came into last season having missed, I think it was more than 20 games in the two previous years. So he was in a... Far worse injury situation than Taylor. I mean, Taylor missed a handful of games last year, uh, but if you look at McCaffrey's injury history, it is much more extreme than Taylor. Um, but what McCaffrey did at the start of last season, which Taylor obviously has not done, is he played. He played all those games in September, all those games in October. He proved that he was healthy. Boom! San Francisco starts three and three. They view themselves as desperate. They view themselves as needing something to, you know, help out. It, it very kind of meager looking quarterback situation and then make that deal. Well, Taylor has not put himself in that position. He hasn't shown that he is healthy or whatever he needs to prove. And that's why I look at Sunday and look at the next couple of games and think, yeah, it, it certainly benefits the Colts to get a player of his caliber back. But does Taylor still think that that October 31st trade deadline is a chance for him to get moved and get what he wants. I, I, that seems a little wishful thinking of me. But that's kind of how this process has gone with Taylor and his agent.
0: Are you surprised that we're at the point in the Colts season where Sunday is an important game? Like, did you expect the Colts, the twenty twenty three Colts, to have important games on the schedule?
3: Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, I had seven wins for them, and, and so me too. You know, to get to seven, it was more of a kind of a back doorway to seven I kind of looked at the end of the year of like they would be playing better and and end of December and early January I think the schedule is a little bit tamer there Um, but I guess I probably should have acknowledged two things one the AFC South is still the gift that keeps on giving it's the only division right now in football where no team has won four or three games everybody's at two and two so I think inevitably, when you have a team or when you have a division filled with teams and none of them are going to run away with it or get off to a great start, then boom, you're going to have a meaningful like early October game. And you could point to, you know, various Colts seasons. I mean, hell, last season. I mean, weren't they? I'm trying to think of when they beat Kansas City and then they beat Jacksonville and Denver. Like for some reason, I'm thinking the Colts were three and two at one point last year. I mean, so I think you can. Yeah, three,
0: two, and one. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the one, obviously, the the, uh, the tie. So, you know, maybe it's not the most shocking thing in the world, but if you would have asked me that, like, in early September, Derek, I probably would have been like, even with me thinking they're going to win seven, like, that seems a, a bit foolish. But, um, again, welcome to the AFC South. And I think in a way, too, these next two weeks, yes, they're big games for the short term, but I also think they're, they are big games just in the eyes of Jim Irsay and in kind of the eyes of the Colts standing within this division. I mean, if you look at Tennessee – um, they have, however you want to describe it, out bullied you, out you. They have done what I think you wanted to do. Chris Ballard wanted to create this trenches, run-game-centric operation, and Tennessee has been better at it than you have. They've won five in a row against you, which is a big number. Uh, I think they're 8-4 and four against Ballard teams if you go back to 2017. And I think in Jim Ursay's eyes, the Colts had dominated Tennessee for so long in this AFC South existence, to now all of, a see, all of a sudden see that been reversed, that stings. And then I think there's a little bit of like, man, we interviewed Mike Vrabel in Ursae's eyes. Like we interviewed Vrabel and all of a sudden egg on its face happened with Josh McDaniels. And now it's been four coaches and Tennessee said the same guy and not to act like Tennessee is the gold standard, but they certainly have had more success that you have, and then you get into the seven-game home losing streak. So, you know, I know J and labeled it as a must-win. I think technically, if you looked at the two, I would point to Jacksonville as the game you need more than Tennessee, just strictly off of the fact that you've already lost him this year. But still, um, I think emotionally, maybe a little bit more off the field, there's a lot of factors with uh, with Tennessee and and why I think Jim Mercer in particular uh, is pretty fired up for this one on Sunday.
0: Yeah, I know John loves that must-win term, doesn't he? That's one of his. Uh, that's one of his favorites. <laughs>
3: I think one year he
0: had the must-win as the opener. <laughs> yeah. uh, every game, right? Every game's the must-win game. <laughs>
3: Kevin Bowen, wake-up
0: call host, joins us here. 93.5, the fan. It's the ride with JMV. Uh, how about – this is going to be a, a weird kind of off-the-cuff question, but Alec Pierce's name keeps getting brought up. I, I see it in the YouTube chat. I see it on Twitter all the time. I think we spend a lot of time talking about – um, not the number one receiver, I, I guess, in this town. Like, people seem to be really upset with Alec Pierce. And I, I don't know about you, Kevin, but he's a downfield threat. And I feel like you're starting to – I think you saw it in game four when you're starting to take the training meals off with Anthony Richardson. Like, I think Pierce is going to factor in more and more. And he, he just couldn't factor in last year because they just didn't have anybody that could get the ball downfield. But am I being too patient and, and homery there with that stance? Like, that's how I feel. I, I think it's going to come for Alec Pierce. I, I just – don't think I'm necessarily ready to see it right away.
3: Yeah, I, I think the greatest thing for Alec Pierce was the drafting of Anthony Richardson because Richardson's strength is getting the ball down the field. You obviously saw it on the play. Those two hooked up on on Sunday. Um, and, and I think that's why the Colts are optimistic about Pierce. And I think that's why Pierce will always have a bit of intrigue is because you can go through the course of a game and if you take two shots down the field of Pierce – and let's say three shots down the field to Pierce during the game. If he catches one of them, draws a big pass interference on the other, and the other one falls incomplete, in a way that's like two catches for 50-some yards, yeah. and that's, that's pretty solid. So I think that is, again, the Colts knew or felt like that would be there. Like when they drafted him at Cincinnati, I mean, Notre Dame and Indiana fans can certainly point to this because Cincinnati played them in Pierce's final season. I mean, Pierce made big-time downfield plays against both those programs. The Indiana game was a great game. Honestly, it's probably what's what, what's really contributed to part of the uh, you know recent downfall here. And for Notre Dame, that was a game that they obviously expected to win at, at home, and Pierce was tremendous making plays in the fourth quarter and, again, down the field, jump ball. Um, I do think there's a real question with Pierce of is he ever going to be a complete whiteout. And, I mean, he was drafted in the middle of the second round, so it, let's not act like he was a day three mm-hmm. pick. And if you look at, obviously, second-round picks in this league or third-round picks, I mean, we just had a recent draft a few years ago where – you know, Debo Samuel was there, and Terry McLaurin was there, and DK Metcalf was there, um, and, and A.J. Brown was in that range. So I think that's where you're curious of, like, do you see more of the Reggie Wayne route tree infiltrate the deep ball ability and the high point ability that he definitely has? I mean, he showed it last year. In the last home game he won, Jacksonville, again, he's the one that, that clinched it with a huge play there to ice that game so i do think it's fair to have questions about him as a complete wide out and some of the underneath stuff and and the ability to you know make a play on third and four that you know you create a little bit of separation you kind of post up on a slant or something like that and you create an opportunity for richardson to to deliver the ball to you i think that's a question but him getting down the field and him contributing in that way if you back up what you did on sunday now all of a sudden safety's kind of cheat over so um yeah, I'm not bailing on Pierce. Again, I think you have to ask the question, but at the same time, you know this is whatever game 20 of his NFL career. Reggie Wayne would be the first to tell you, you know he wasn't one. And you obviously have had a lot of conversations with him, Derek. You know it didn't click for Reggie. He would say it's more depth chart related, and that the coach should have played him earlier. But it didn't really click for him until more year. Year two or even year uh, year three.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm still waiting for Dante Moncrie's breakout season. So maybe I'm just overly <laughs> patient with wide receivers. I'm not sure. Maybe this is maybe this is a me thing more than an Alec Pierce thing.
3: Gosh, I, <laughs> I was high on Moncrie. too, oh, man. Boy, that was uh, yeah. That, that did not go well. It never happened. Dropping a third down in Ballard's first year, and, and Ballard said something to the effect of, "That's who he's always going to be." And, and it was one of those telling comments of like, wow. you know what? You know, that, that pretty much sums it up of SEC third round wide out had all this, you know, intrigue and everything and, and obviously didn't work out here and certainly didn't work out anywhere else.
0: Uh, last thing here, Colts related, at least, Kevin, um, how concerned are you about the Dallas Flowers injury? Because I, I feel like that maybe got a little bit overshadowed because he's, he's while he's not a frontline player, he seemingly held his own through the first couple of games at a position where the Colts are just hopelessly thin.
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's a great point to bring up. Not only in the short term, but in the long term. Um, obviously, short term, you just pointed out they are hopelessly thin. I mean, you know, Juju Brents two weeks ago was not dressing, and all of a sudden he now is on. He's going to be on the field for every snap come Sunday. And then the other corner, you either have to go back to Daryl Baker Jr., uh, who you benched two weeks ago, or you go to Jalen Jones, a seventh round pick, um, a guy that I thought had a really nice off season, but. You know, know, seventh-round rookie is not something you expect to all of a sudden be playing a really meaningful third-corner role. And then I think just kind of bigger picture, and and Flowers-related, of course, I mean, this is a torn Achilles for a guy that this staff was intrigued by. And, and, you know, in my eyes, cornerback is on that, you know, high-level, important position that kind of stand above a lot of the rest. You know, obviously quarterback. But then I think in that second tier, you know, wide out, you know, tackle, Defensive end and, and corner, those would be on that next tier. And you, you, you just can't invest, like, first-round picks across the board. So at some of these spots, you're going to have to hit. And that's why Bernard Ryman is a third-round pick. If he can hit at left tackle, that does wonders for you moving forward. Well, at corner, yeah, they drafted Juju Brent in the second round. But, you know, the other corner is very much up in the air of just what the future looks like. And now all of a sudden, a guy that they liked, a guy that I know Stefan Gilmore really liked as well, He's torn his Achilles after having, I think, a nice start to the season. And, you know, anytime it's a torn Achilles, especially for a player at at corner where change of direction is certainly paramount, you wonder about, you know, where he's going to be come 12 months from now when the 2024 season is here. And and now you enter an offseason and it's like, okay, you know, you, you got like what, four or five young corners, you know, dating back to a few months ago that you're intrigued by. You know, Flowers would have been one of them. Darius Rush would have been one of them. Those two are either gone or done for the season. And now it's Juju Brents and Gerald Baker Jr. who's already been benched, and it's Jalen Jones' the seventh-round pick. So I think that's where it's obviously a bummer for Flowers. It's a bummer here in the short term because you're scrambling at a thin position. But also in terms of trying to find those puzzle pieces moving forward, um, this is a big deal because I do think he is one of the you know unheralded guys that was in position to possibly be – a, a key corner for the future. And now he's got a pretty steep climb ahead of him.
0: Last thing here, Kevin. I know they took your voice away at least temporarily. Um, how many years of your life are you losing on Notre Dame football? At least in the last two weeks.
3: Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's um, it, you know it's just one of those like doses of fandom sort of reminders that I get, and Notre Dame football unfortunately has provided a lot of that. Of like, is this worth it? Um, But, yeah, Ohio State, I mean, how – I mean, they obviously contributed to some dumb situations. But, you know, in a way, I felt like they were a bit unlucky not to win that game. Um, Certainly, again, did their own part in creating that negative luck. But then certainly against Duke, beyond lucky to (laughs) have a quarterback that I don't call a scrambler – uh, yeah, go 17 yards on a 4th and 16 against a really good defense. So, yeah, I don't know what they've got up their sleeve for Saturday night at Louisville, and then certainly next Saturday against USC. So, yeah, the gray hair has already been growing a lot. Certainly two years with Jake contributed to more of it, and the hair loss is, um, <laughs> has been alive and well as well. So. That continues to be there. Notre Dame football is not helping it. But the crazy thing about college football is that somehow if they can get through these next two weeks. Obviously, beating USC a big part of it. You enter the bye week, and and the schedule outside of that Clemson looks pretty manageable the rest of the way. And who knows? Maybe you could factor into a playoff uh, playoff spot.
0: And, and look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm a football coach. But it amazes me, even like really smart football coaches. those games are so similar to me in the sense that their had what was it the third and 16 and they rushed three and they get burned for it right it's first and goal at the one yard line duke game on the line right fourth and 16 what do they do they rush three and you're just like (laughs) it been working for you all night doing pressure on sam hartman and and he just kind of sat there like i don't think he was ready to run but he was just like all right fine (laughs) i I guess i'm just gonna do this here and you wonder why coaches get soft in those crucial moments. I don't get it.
3: Well, and two, if you look at what Notre Dame did to Kyle McCord leading into that third and 19, if you look at what Mike Elko did to Sam Hartman leading into that fourth and sixth, they had brought pressure. Yeah, like, they had, they had Duke created, brought it all night. They, yeah. Yeah, it's not like they had created this long-distance situation by rushing three. I mean, Hartman got smoked leading into that fourth down play there. And I, as soon as they started rushing three, I'm like, oh my gosh, this allows him at least to like create something because you know they were down their top two wideouts. So I mean, it's not like they had you know high level wideouts. It's not that they have them to begin with. So as soon as he started to run, I'm like, dear lord, he must see something that is a lot of green grass, and certainly it was so. Yeah, crazy, crazy game to say the
0: least. Listen to Kevin every morning, right here on these same airwaves, seven o'clock for the wake up call, Wish T V, Kevin's Corner, dude is everywhere. Uh at K Bowen ten seventy on Twitter as well. Appreciate it as always, my man. Thanks so much.
3: Enjoy the chat, Sarah, hope James as well, and uh
0: talk to you soon, man.